Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 233, and today's guest is Ryan New, founder and CEO of Vendor. The negotiation dance. Some might enjoy it, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most people probably don't, especially when it comes to purchasing software. It's like a known fact that if you wait until the end of the quarter, you'll likely get a better rate versus if you purchase the same product at the beginning of the quarter. So it's little nuances like that that make the whole process of purchasing software very frustrating. Well, it was Ryan's experience in sales that opened his eyes to this challenge in the industry and realized that there must be a better way. A better way with transparent pricing and a frictionless buy-in experience, which also saves you money. Enter Vendor, the SaaS buy-in platform that is changing how companies buy and renew SaaS. With over 300 million in SaaS purchases across over 1,000 suppliers, the Vendor SaaS buying platform enables the world's fastest growing companies to purchase SaaS without friction and at a fair price. The company recently announced a $60 million Series A round of funding led by Tiger Global. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like why it's important for entrepreneurs to think big about their business starting day one, how Ryan transitioned into a career in sales at Scavenger, then landed at HubSpot, where he worked his way into a leadership role and then led enterprise sales at Envision, all the details on vendor, including their massive growth, hiring, all about the company's culture and their recent round of funding, what his experience at Y Combinator taught him, advice for entrepreneurs on hiring and structuring their sales team, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at just $79 a month. Plus, you can get 10% off select packages by using our code FIZZ20, that's F-I-Z-Z-2-0, at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ryan. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Keith. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about your current company, Vendor, which uh, recently announced a $60 million Series A round of funding. So there's a lot of momentum at Vendor. Uh, we're certainly going to talk about your background story. And we've got some things in common, which is going to be fun to talk about. Uh, but before we get into all that, uh, I want to talk about kind of like the vision and North Star for a startup, right? Um, a challenge that a lot of entrepreneurs face is thinking big and thinking big, big from day one, right? Because you're kind of like, okay, we got to get started with a product and get some revenue, but never thinking about the bigger picture of the overall vision and North Star for the company. So what advice would you have for entrepreneurs kind of thinking about that from day one? Yeah, you know, I would say that I'm in the camp of a founder who has struggled with that, candidly. And the analogy that I, I'd like to give is like, if you're if you're making tacos at home, are you sitting there telling your partner, like, I'm going to go disrupt Taco Bell? Like, probably not. You're probably <laughs> like, dude, did you like the tacos? Were they good? And if the person's like, yeah, and like, maybe we give them to more people. And then like, if everyone else is like, these are great, then you're probably like, oh, maybe I'll do like a food truck. And right. then you start your food truck and then you get, you know, a ton of traffic and then maybe you open your first restaurant. And then maybe five years later, you're, you've got a massive chain and you're finally disrupt Taco Bell. And I think of, of entrepreneurship in a similar capacity where 
day one, it almost feels, uh, it, it, it feels, it doesn't feel authentic to tell everyone how you're going to change the world before you even have a customer. And um, so I struggled with this where early days, I think I was, I, I liked to be much more realistic on the traction we were, we had, which was like, a, you know, obviously day one, it's like we had one customer and what were we learning with that one customer? Well, we were learning, we could save them money. And then eventually we could save them time. And then eventually we could be, you know, be a massive component of like their financial team. And like, we could just own their purchasing. And, and so the, the big vision, at least for us started coming through traction and with, with, with more and more traction, I felt more authentic saying the vision. Um, but, but with that, when we, we went through Y Combinator and they were very instrumental with, with thinking big. And they aren't, they, they, they didn't give the recommendation to just say big things. It was actually think big and then actually, you know, work backwards from there. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely have struggled with it, but, but I'm really happy with where we got, where we got to, but a lot of it, it truly did come from traction and like actually feeling that this thing is actually going to be very, very big helped me, helped me set a, a, a proper North Star for the company. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's important to kind of have that balance. Cause yeah, you're right. You don't want to be imposter syndrome of thinking you're going to change the world and not necessarily have the knowledge to how to get there, but you do need to think big, especially if you're going to go out and raise capital because the investors are going to want a big market, the big vision, uh, not just, you know, a food truck. So uh, it's important to think big. The thing about the, with the investors, they, they want you to think big, but, but they also won't back that unless they see the tactical small things, right? Yeah. So they need to see that traction. They need to see the learnings. And, and by starting with the learnings, it then can help tell that bigger story. So it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic of which one comes first. And obviously, probably the, the best is both, where you have day one, huge vision and early traction, but that's incredibly rare. For us, we had early traction, lack of big vision, um, and then we got towards the vision. Yeah, and we're going to talk in detail about how you got there, which was a great part of this story. So, but let's talk about you. So, rewind the clock. Like, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah, so I was born in Michigan, and so I'm, I'm from the Midwest. And in fifth grade, um, my uh, my dad changed jobs, and so we moved from Michigan to Ohio. And um, I was in Ohio until. I went to college, which in college, I went to Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, so bounced around a little bit. Um, but yeah, uh, originally from the Midwest. Um, Beautiful place to go to school. It must have been hard to study there. <laughs> it was. It was amazing. Uh, I actually did my freshman year at University of Delaware. And um, uh. that summer, I, I was visiting a friend in Charleston. I had never been there. And I saw the city for the first time and literally immediately looked up the, uh, the admissions office and went in and applied and transferred. So <laughs> a little bit different than the blue hands. Yes. Just a little bit. Uh, the claim <laughs> to fame. I was in Joe Flacco, uh, the quarterback, the NFL quarterback psychology yeah. class. Were you really? <laughs> oh, that's a good fun fact. Okay. Yeah. Very uh, successful quarterback from the University of Delaware that won a Super Bowl. So uh, very, very cool. All right. So coming out of college, what did you do? So in college, I studied accounting. And um, so my dad was an accountant. And then he ended up working for a bank. And um, I remember going into college, he said, uh, or when I was like, choosing my major, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was never, um, 
I enjoyed being at school, but I was not, I didn't enjoy school. So I was never a, a, a great student. Um, but I, I remember my dad saying, you know, beware of just graduating with a general business degree because what type of job will you get? And um, I was like, I don't know. I'm sure I'll find like a great job. And he's like, well, maybe, but maybe not. And so he was seeing something that at the time I didn't see. And so his recommendation was um, learn a skill set. Whatever that skill set is, just try to leave school with the skill set. And um, so I followed in his shoes and I became, I, well, I got it, I received an accounting major. And um, upon graduation, I, my first job was, was KPMG. So um, I got out of College of Charleston and it immediately moved to Boston and started my very short career as a public accountant. And this is where we have a little bit in common because coming out of college, I graduated with a finance degree and, you know, not knowing what I wanted to do. A neighbor of mine uh, provided me with a summer internship at a company called Real Estate Tax Services. And I guess that's a branding lesson of a company. If you want to name your company, you should name it what they do, because <laughs> that's exactly what's the name of the company. But then I ended up joining KPMG after. So I joined that real estate tax services company for two years out of college because the internship transition transitioned into a full-time job. But then I went to KPMG and spent two years there, which was phenomenal experience. I, I learned a ton. It was a great firm to work for. Um, so why did you end up switching careers from KPMG? Yeah, I mean, KPMG was a really good experience. Um, but I also, I the thing I learned is what I didn't like, didn't want to be doing. And it, I just found it weird, like graduating school um, without any sort of inkling or hint that there was other type of opportunity, like, like sales, for example, and, and, and startups. And like, there's, there's so much um, that now I think people that are graduating school, like a lot of people just go directly into a startup. But when I graduated, it was just, you get your degree and then you go work for a big company, hopefully if you get the job. And I just thought that's what like, work was. And I remember day one at KPMG, just showing up and I had like my baggy khakis on my tucked in Brooks Brothers shirt. I just felt so out of place, <laughs> not in only appearance, but just like, I felt like I didn't want to be doing that. And I just, yeah. again, nothing against KPMG. It was just not, I didn't want to be an accountant. And um, so I, I made it about two, two and a half years. Um, I left before they probably asked me to leave, but um, there was a moment where, I was on the audit side and I was um, in Boston auditing a private equity company and the private equity, the team that worked there, they were casual, having fun. They're going out for like their liquid lunch at like Davio's and, you know, it's just like, <laughs> and I'm yeah. sitting in like the, like their conference room, like auditing their books. And I just remember thinking at the time, like I, I couldn't look at these papers of like from an auditing perspective and, and find any passion there because I'm just checking that they're not lying. Like that's real. That was my job. Like ensure or attest that these people are telling the truth. I'm like, gosh, that is so uninteresting to me because I actually want to be the, the, the company or the person that's like creating something that someone else will have to audit, like make, make something real. And, um, and so there, there were a few moments along my journey there that I just eventually, I hit a point, my something in my gut or heart said, do something different. And um, I, I, I quit and I took a job um, at the time, a, a really early company in Boston called Scavenger, which became Level Up, which then- Oh, you're a Scavenger. Okay. 
Yeah, I was. What did you was do there? When, yes, when Scavenger was about 10 or 15 people, um, I took a job in sales and they took a chance on me because I had zero sales experience. And um, they, yeah, they let me join the sales team. And it was my first entrance into a different career, a career of sales. Um, but from day one, it just, it was home. Like I just, I knew how to sell. And I, and I think I knew how to sell because I was passionate about it. I was trying to learn how to sell. I was testing things. I was refining my process and all of the things that like someone that is passionate about accounting, they're probably, they're doing that in that field. I wasn't. And so I was like a very, very subpar accountant, but pretty early on, I, I think I was a really, really good salesperson. I think a lot of it was because of the passion. Now, were you selling their mobile tour guide product before they made the whole shift to the payments of what they're known for? Yeah, I was. So I was selling sponsorships. So, so what Scavenger did early days, they were a Foursquare competitor. So it was like a mobile check-in thing, but it was like a, oh, a, a virtual yeah. scavenger hunt right. on your phone. And we would go city to city and we would sell what we called diamond dashes, where we would work with a jeweler in a local town and we would hold a big mobile scavenger hunt, but in the real world. Yeah. And so we would go there and we would get the radio station and we would get sponsors, which was my job. I would get all the sponsors. And then we would invite like 500 couples to compete for a diamond ring. And they would go around their city into all the different sponsor shops, like wedding gown place, floral place, like all, like venues. And, and so it was like, it was demand gen for those businesses. And then the winner received a diamond ring and it was a massive, um, and they would usually propose on stage. And it was a massive um, event for the jeweler where they would then obviously get like their target market there for an entire day. And um, so I was responsible for sponsorships, which I loved because it was inside sales. I could call, I could sell, I could sit, like, sell the vision. But then they were like, well, we actually want you to go run these scavenger hunts. And that's another sales role. But that was really more of like an event role. And right. I am not, I don't like that. And um, I ended up on, on stage giving a diamond ring to the wrong couple because I was so nervous. So uh, <laughs> that was my lesson to maybe stay on the phone, stay behind the scenes. Right. Um, but yeah, I, it was Scavenger. And then um, I left Scavenger, uh, did my first startup, my first real startup. Um, and then after that, ended up going to HubSpot. Well, yeah, before we get into HubSpot, so entrepreneurship is something that was always of interest. Like you were kind of had a, a few different things that you kind of participated in. I don't know how far they got, but it always seemed like you were, had that entrepreneurial slant. I did from a, a really young age. Um, I remember when, when I was really young, my dad used to, if he was going on like a work trip, he would come in in the morning and like wish me a good day for, you know, heading to school. And I, I remember like our joke was, I would always tell him, I'm actually not going to school today. He's like, oh, where are you going? And I was like, oh, I've got a, a business trip in Atlanta or I'm, I'm flying over to London today. And I was just always, um, my mind was always going towards business. And I really don't know why. Um, my grandfather was, uh, was an entrepreneur. He was like, he had like the, one of the first Apple stores in his town. Um, and so I, I don't know if it's in the DNA, um, but, but yeah, it, it was, it was always, it, it was always in, in my heart. I wanted to, to start a company. I just didn't know how. And, um, I left scavenger 
and I started a company um, with a friend of mine, uh, Court, who who's a mutual uh, friend of ours, I believe. Yes, but, absolutely. Uh, we started a company called Blogger Offer, and this was in the group buying days of Groupon and Living Social. And our insight was we can like we can power group buying for communities and. Uh, the first community that we sold to was Barstool Sports, which at the time was based in Boston. And Barstool Sports was, you know, big, but nothing like they are now. And um, we called up the founder, Dave Portnoy, who at the time lived in Milton, and told him the idea. And he said, okay, like what, you want to like power group buying for Barstool? And we're like, yes, and we want you to, you know, promote each group buy from you, from your voice, because your community, you know, will trust your recommendation and we'll source the deals that you are actually really excited about. He's like, all right, well, come, come by my house, pitch me on it. And then I'll, I'll let you know. And he said, yes. And so Court and I went to Milton and we pitched Barstool Sports and one meeting, he said, yes. And then we had a business and um, it was fascinating. We did it for... <laughs> It felt like 10 years. We did it for like 10 months and we, we ran out of money. The group, the group buying phase for physical products, you know, that kind of went through an ebb and flow and, um, but, but we had a lot of fun and learned a tremendous amount, but also learned that entrepreneurship is hard. We, we closed a massive logo, like we had our distribution partner. He had a community of millions of people that he could promote these offers to. And they did work. Like we sold a bunch of offers, but we didn't have a sustainable business model. And uh, so we had an idea, but I, I don't think we had a, um, a sustaining business at the time. Was this from the days of Dart Boston and all that? Was that the same time frame or? It was. Yeah. 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 It was a great time. Was, great time in the tech scene like of Boston. 2009, 2010 is when we did it. Yeah, oh, that was just like a foundational years of that next generation. And it's just so cool to see where everyone's gone, like Court and so many other great entrepreneurs from that era. Okay, so then you made the shift into sales and you joined this company that was just a couple hundred people at the time, I think, called HubSpot. Yeah, so we were running out of money and Court and I were looking at our shared bank account. And I just remembered we had we do a really good group buy and we would get the bank of the, the account up to $30,000 and then we'd have to pay out bar stool for half. And then it was like, Oh my God, it's just depleting. And, and every day, um, court and I, it became clearer and clearer that this was going to fail. And, um, court one day came in and said, um, I don't think this is going to work. I said, I don't either. And he said, I'm going to go start a company. I'm going to go start terrible labs and which was an engineering consultancy. And, um, I said, okay. He's like, do you want to do it with me? I said, no, because <laughs> I don't think <laughs> I don't think I can help. You know, I don't. This is, I'm not. That's that's not where my mind is, and I also don't think I will be able to add the equal value as you. And so I think I'm going to go find a company to work for, and I just want to go, you know, join their sales team. And so I was like, do you have any recommendations? And he's like, well, you know, there's a company called HubSpot. They seem to be doing quite well. They're like 200 people now, and it's like, what do they do? He's like, it's like inbound marketing. I was like, what is that? It's like, it's like digital marketing. I was like, what, what is that? What is he's that? like, honestly, like, I, it's not my job to sell you on HubSpot. Why don't I just introduce you? Uh, and it was a genius move. He's like, I'll introduce you to Brian Hallman. And uh, I was like, sounds great. And so he bridges an intro to Brian Halligan. And uh, Brian Halligan responds pretty soon. And he's like, 
meet our recruiting team. Like, thanks for your interest. But basically, like, just just talk to recruiting. Right. Um, but it, it was really interesting because we then had a you know an intro from the CEO to recruiting. So then it, it I secured the the interview. Um, studied like hell and learned what they were up to. Got really really excited about it and landed landed that job. And um, I remember in my final round interview, Mark Roberge was the CRO at the time, and um, he he said I, I asked the classic closing question in an inter- interview for salespeople, which is like, "Do you have any reservations about my candidacy?" And Mark said, "I do." I think you will eventually leave to start your own company. And he's like, I'm, I'm afraid that we will hire you and you'll do it very soon. Like maybe you'll, you'll leave a year from now. And then for us as, as HubSpot, that's it's not a good thing, right? We actually want people to have tenure here. Um, so it's, it's kind of funny to look back and, and see that he saw that in my DNA um, years before that I actually ended up, you know, obviously doing that. But you did have tenure there because you were there almost six years. I did. I stayed six years. I started as a salesperson, and um, about two years in, they started to indicate that they, it was maybe time for international expansion. Um, I put my name in the hat and ended up getting to go to Dublin to help open the first office. Wow. Um, but it was it was pretty brilliant because I I got to go as an individual contributor, not in management. And so I just got to like do my job and like, you know, help teach people, uh, the, the new hires that we we'd hired in Dublin, just sh- like they could shadow me and like, like just show them what, what, what it was all about, but then I could just travel and, you know, sales, individual contributors, when you're above your number, you, <laughs> you, you have flexibility. And I, uh. I definitely took full advantage of that, which was, um, a really fun, a really fun six months. Um, and then came back and uh, got into management. So I became a sales manager um, and I took over a struggling team. And three months in, I was so frustrated because the team was, we were the worst team at the company, the lowest performing sales team. And I remember um, sending an email to Brian Halligan when he asked why we were missing our number, I assigned blame. And it was basically like, well, I was given this team. And like, I was a really good salesperson but I wasn't a really good sales manager and we had a, 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 a low performing team. And so I assigned blame and I'll never forget it. He, that night sent me an email at two in the morning and I'm guessing he couldn't sleep because he was pissed off and he was reflecting back in that conversation. And he sent me an email that was like this long. And it was basically like, uh, we didn't hire you to assign blame. We hired you to fix this team. And by the way, we intentionally gave you that team. And that is the best opportunity at a company is to take over the lowest performing team, to make magic out of that team, to make it the best team. And if we gave you the best team and you kept it as the best team, that's not that interesting. And it just totally flipped my mindset. And it was a wake-up call. And I, I thought that email would have either been, this is a second chance, which it was, or it would have been like, you're out of here. And uh, really grateful for Brian for giving me the second chance. Yeah, great um, leadership by Brian. Yeah, it was. And, and, and it worked. I mean, we turned the team around. Um, six months later, we had the number one performing team at the company. And wow. um, which was just an incredible experience. Got to, I learned how to uh, have people leave the team 
um, when to leave the team, how to help people leave the team, learned how to hire great people, um, and then learned how to keep your best people. And specifically by giving them autonomy and then um, empowering them to take on more. And our best people, both from you know the entry-level salespeople, like the business development team, to our account executives, our best people became accountable to making everyone around them successful. And it, and it was truly like the team, it was magical. Like the team just started naturally making each other better versus me sitting there trying to train each individual person. And so um, having the opportunity to do that is just something that really stuck with me. And it's something that's core to what I believe in, which is the best teams come from within. Like it comes from your best people helping make others better, not this magical manager making the team as, as good that, uh, you know, or equal to him or her. That's great, great advice right there. Rising tide lifts all boats. And, you know, same thing in sports. You can't have individuals just outperforming the other individuals. It's a team effort that hopefully propels the team to success. So true. So you did eventually move on to Envision, which um, amazing product. I, I, I use it here at VentureFizz. Um, so so where, where was that company at and what was your role there? Yeah, so I spent six years at HubSpot. And at the time I was the director of small business sales. And so I had a, a sales org that was responsible to selling HubSpot to very small companies, um, sub 25 person um, companies, which at the time was actually HubSpot sweet spot. It's where like 80% of our leads were coming from. And, but as, as you know, time goes on, HubSpot obviously went more, um, I would say mid-market, but um, I was pegged as a small business salesperson. And from the outside, I remember a, a VC, one of the first VCs that I ever met said, you have a great resume from HubSpot, but you're an SMB salesperson. You can't do enterprise. And I was like, what do you mean I can't do enterprise? Like I've never done it, but it doesn't mean I can't do it. And um, so that was actually one of the things that stuck with me. I was like, you know what? I am going to leave. I'm going to do something different and I'm going to prove that I can sell to bigger companies. And um, in 2016, I left and I went to Envision to run enterprise sales. And at the time, Envision, I believe, was about 200 to 300 people. Um, and they were, I think, Series C or Series D. But um, so they had a ton of traction. They had a, a massive freemium success of their freemium product. And I got to help sell uh, and help run a team selling Envision to the Fortune 5000 which was a lot different than selling HubSpot to at the time, like, you know, plumbers and small marketing agencies. And it was just night and day different from a persona perspective. Um, but it was also really similar. And I got in there, I was like, this is not that different. And, um, you know, I think a lot of it with Envision was they were, we were selling to very large companies, but we were selling, it was product-led growth. We were selling a low entry point. And so like the average contract value between the two was very similar at the time. And so I never had done a true, you know, strategic sale of massive implementation, you know, tens of millions of dollars, that sale I've still never done. Um, but, the, the, you know, I'd envision what I, what I went there for and what I, what I received was the opportunity to learn how to sell into very, very large companies. All right. So what led you down the path of, starting your own company and kind of what was the foundation of 
why vendor needed to exist. Yeah, I mean, I think the there, there was a, a couple of things at play. The the first was selling to small businesses was very similar to selling to large companies in the sense that there was a long sales cycle. And when you're selling to small companies, it's an emotional decision, which actually makes it very hard. You know, if it's a business owner and it's like their cash flow, that is a very hard emotional sale that oftentimes takes a fair amount of time. And I think at HubSpot at the time, it was 50 days, you know, our sales cycle. Um, Envision, a little different. It's massive companies, it's less emotional, but it's more complex in the sense that just because a person wants something at a company doesn't mean they can get it because it has to go through procurement, legal, security, compliance, all of that. And maybe the deal blows up. And the result of that is you have a sales cycle. And so both of these companies, like the average sales cycle in SaaS today in software, it's like 90 days. And if you look around, like what else takes 90 days to buy? Your car doesn't, right? <laughs> your house might, you know, yet you want to go buy like a great software product. It's going to take you 90 days and it just never made sense. Um, and so I, it was that. And then it was the, the second piece was why are people indicating to me that they're going to buy and then they don't. Right? And it's not just like periodically close rates are like 20%. And that's from opportunity, like deals a salesperson thinks they're going to win to closed one deals they do win. It's like 20, 25%. And so you're spending 80% of your time as a salesperson with people that don't buy. Right. Which, which is so skewed. <laughs> it's so skewed. And so, so what do companies have to do? Well, because it's so inefficient, you have to hire more salespeople. You have to hire more BDRs. You have to hire more marketers. You have to spend more marketing dollars. You have to spend more money to acquire a customer because you have such an inefficient sales process. And even the best sales companies in the world, they have an inefficient sales process. It's, it's not nothing against the salesperson. It's about the industry. And there's just, it's just, there's friction at every point. And there's distrust. It's the, the buyer doesn't understand the seller. The seller doesn't understand the buyer. And I always found it so confusing that I, as a salesperson, could dictate what you pay for my product, for yeah. you know, the company I work for's product, I should say, not my product. Yeah. And wh why do I have that power? And salespeople, I think, have that power because companies think that that power enables them to sell or that power enables them to sell faster or create urgency to close on time. But that power is actually creating the problem of the inefficient sales motion because the buyers of software know that this exists. They know that there's opaqueness in price and a lack of transparency of the variables that lead to the best price. And so it makes you question the person you're interacting with. Right? But why do we want to question this process? Like, why, why, if you're entering a partnership, if you're buying something, that's like an exciting thing. You know, software is immensely, it's hugely powerful for companies. Like this should be like exciting and easy, not, you shouldn't have to question uh, the, the things you're hearing. And so. Well, for like enterprise sales, right? Like wouldn't, like the buyers were pretty savvy. They're like, wait till the end of the quarter when the heat's on for the sales rep, and then they're going to discount their price. <laughs> right. And, but, but why do we have to play that game? Right. Like, it's a why, game. Why, why play that game? game? 
it, it, it's it, inefficient. It became, and it's inefficient. And like when I hear even on the procurement side, which um, like that, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a great buyer of software because I just wait till quarter. It candidly, I think that actually makes you a bad buyer of software because imagine like the best software product you've ever used. You know, for us, maybe it's Zoom or Slack or HubSpot, mm-hmm. right? The best product you've ever used. What if you had that five years earlier? Yeah. How much more powerful would have your business been? How much faster would have you grown? Like software changes the game. And so this concept of I'm just going to wait till quarter end to get that extra discount is actually hurting your business. Like, but I, yet I understand why you have to do that. I understand why buyers say that. I understand why buyers do it, but my goal was to, to fix it, to change it. And, um, I decided in 2018, uh, I was so I was only at Envision, you know, two years. I decided that I was going to leave to fix this problem, and I thought there were two paths: either create a sales efficiency tool, like you know, create a tool that helps salespeople be better. Um, which you know, I think as I was looking around, I'm like, well, HubSpot's doing a great job, Salesforce is doing a great job, Drift here in Boston is doing a great job. You've got Intercom, you've got all of these things, Gong and Chorus and Sales Loft and Outreach, just amazing products. But those products are helping salespeople, but they're also helping salespeople create more noise, which is actually creating more confusion for buyers. And so while those products add a ton of value, what I'm trying to do is something different. Like I wanted to actually just change the game, like eliminate the game. And so it was either like build a sales efficiency or enablement tool or change how people buy, just change how companies buy SaaS. Um, that's obviously the decision we went with. Hopefully it was the right decision. Um, but in 2018, in August uh, or July, I left Envision to start Vendor. Um, yeah. So, you know, the goal here is, hey, let's get rid of the friction of B2B sales and, and software and SaaS. So how, how is that done? Is it like uh, transparency and knowledge of pricing that's just out there for people to consume versus kind of the sales rep holding the keys to what the pricing should be? Yeah. I mean, day one, it was just take on this work for companies, right? Don't force them to play the game. Um, just if, if there is a game to play, fine, we'll play it. No big deal. Um, but companies don't have to. And so on day one, I, I went to companies and I said, I will just buy SaaS for you because I am a former SaaS salesperson and I understand SaaS. I understand most of the leverage points. Um, I understand a lot of the products and over time, I'll hopefully learn more and more and I will be able to buy it for you at a discount because of my knowledge. Um, and a lot of companies, well, you know, early days, they're like, well, I guess that sounds interesting, but I don't know if we really need that because it hadn't existed before. There was no such thing as like SaaS buying, like go just do this for me, Um, but was able to convince a couple of companies to give me a shot. And no coincidence, the first one was Envision. They actually, my boss, when I was leaving, Seth Shaw, he said, who's now he's the CRO at Airtable. He said, well, why doesn't Envision become your first customer? And I was like, that would be amazing. And they did. Um, And then the second customer was HubSpot. And um, that was less because of the relationship, but um, it helped book the meeting. And so um, having early traction 
was just, um, I felt very fortunate as a founder to have day one revenue, um, but also day one opportunity to learn what this business could become by doing it, right? By having customers, by diving right in and, and just figuring out, is this actually a real problem in the market? I think that speaks to a lot of you as a person and your relationship capabilities that you left both companies on outstanding terms that they were like, we want to work together regardless if you're working in-house or if you've got your own company. So I think that speaks a lot to you as a person and the ability to carry on those relationships to be your first two customers, your former employee employers, and then using those amazing logos to help build the business of what vendor could be in the future. I, I, I definitely think it's partially attributed to the, my relationship. I think the, especially with, um, with Envision, it was Seth and Clark, the CEO, it was their willingness, proactive willingness to support people that were leaving. And that stuck with me, which people leave companies and it's, you know, I think it's natural to think it's emotional and it's going to be not fun and it's your relationship ends, but they took a totally different approach, which was like, you're leaving, that's a bummer. I'm sorry, it didn't work out. Like they took accountability for the fact that it didn't work. Even though like it did work, I just wanted to do something different. But they they felt um, accountable to making me successful, and I'll never forget that because it's not because they they liked me so much that they would give me a shot. It was that I think they created the process uh, that was or a framework that was incredibly important to them, which was supporting their team whether they're at the company or leaving. And it's something that I wanted to instill a vendor from day one, um, and I plan to because um, it, it just truly changed the course for, for vendor. Yeah. And I mean, I know you started vendor after Envision, but I just remember HubSpot had that same philosophy where Brian Halligan and Dharmesh Shah would absolutely support people going off to start companies. And that was a very positive thing where this, I don't know if you call it a mafia, but the HubSpot alumni have definitely gone off to do amazing things. And that was, you know, a part of their culture that was supported. Now let's talk about, uh, you kind of starting to build the core of the business. So you did talk about Y Combinator earlier in this conversation. So um, what was that process like? You know, where was the business when you applied and what was that, you know, experience like being at Y Combinator? Yeah, so I started a company in two, like 2018 uh, in August. I think is when we, I first, it wasn't incorporated. It was an LLC at the time and it was called Purchase. And the URL was purchase.com tech. And I would tell people what I was working on. They're like, oh, what's the URL? And I was like, purchase.tech. And then they would call it purchase tech. And I was like, no, 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 it's just purchase. <laughs> and they're like, no, like, yeah, purchase tech. I was like, oh my God, this is such a terrible name. And it reminded me if there's any um, Office Space fans that listen to the podcast, in a tech. And I was just like, <laughs> I got like, literally the most old school name here. <laughs> So I canned it. I was like, I'm done. I have like no traction. No one knows me. No one knows this company. <clears throat> I'm just going to change the name now and changed it to vendor. Um, and then, yeah, so we obviously stuck with that name, but the, um, I decided to apply to Y Combinator fairly randomly. Um, so I, I worked on the company alone for the first nine months. So we didn't have any employees until April of 2019. And that's when I hired uh, Jeff Swank and then Chris Alto, um, two people that I had worked with previously. Um, 
And I decided to apply to Y Combinator. And I remember, um, I, I remember going up to Jeff and Chris and saying, guys, what do you think of this? Do you think this is a good idea? And they were like, well, you said you wanted to build a lifestyle business. Like you just wanted to <laughs> you'd get a bunch of customers. <laughs> we could all make a bunch of money. Like this is like a lifestyle business. So if we apply to Y Combinator, that's going to be a lot different. I was like, that's a good point. Um, they're like, but yeah, of course you should apply. Like that would, this sounds amazing. Um, so I did. And at the time we had four customers, um, about $200,000 of annual recurring revenue. And um, our four customers, it was Envision, it was HubSpot, or is still, uh, Salsify here in Boston, and then Gainsight. So four really cool logos, and it was working. We had a lot of early traction with them, um, but I applied, and in the Y Combinator interview, um, so we got the interview, and I went out for it, and I remember pitching them, basically telling them I was never going to build a tech team behind this. I had no plans on it. And thinking back, I don't know what the hell they were thinking, <laughs> admitting us into, into Y Combinator because they had the, the founder literally telling them that we're probably just going to keep this as a service and um, you know, no plans at all to, to build technology. Um, but they saw something different. They saw that over time, I will probably change my mind when I realize one, how big this could be and two, how much faster could go with technology. And both of those things happened. Um, but I, yeah, one day I'll, I'll have to ask them, the people that were in the interview of why they said yes. And um, my gut is knowing more about Y Combinator now. We actually just went through pretty much YC part two. We were part of their, their growth program. And um, they look for they look for markets that are really big. That they're, they're very bullish on like SaaS in this case. They think people will keep using SaaS. And they're, they like to see early traction. And so the fact that we had four um, customers that it was working and they were like really notable logos um, worked in our favor. And then the third thing was they like to see founders with very specific expertise. And in this case, that expertise, I think was my sales expertise trying to fix sales. So they liked like former salesperson fixes sales. And uh, so I said a lot of things that they probably disagreed with, but they, they gave us the benefit of the doubt. And then, yeah, we, we got into the program in 2019. It was also unique because uh, the, not a lot of single founder companies in Y Combinator, they usually look for, or they preach co-founders, right? Isn't that part of what they usually look for as well? They do. I think over time they've, they've definitely admitted more solo founders. Um, but, but I do think they, they believe that having, um, having a co-founder is a, a massive advantage because building a startup is really, really hard. And having someone that's in the trenches with you is um, incredibly powerful. And, you know, for me, our earliest you know, team members, um, and to this day, we have a lot of people at the company that I lean on like a co-founder. And so I started the company alone, but I, I definitely haven't done it alone. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about how you continue to build product market fit, because, you know, if this was going to be a services business, that's not really something you can scale unless you've got headcount. So how did you start to evolve the business to where it is today? Yeah. So we um, pretty quickly realized we did want to build technology behind this. And reason being is that what we saw is that we can actually help every company. Like I actually think like our TAM 
is every company that uses software. And the reason I think that is because every company that uses software is going through the problem of the pain in the ass of buying software. And on the flip side, every software company is going through the pain in the ass of selling software. And so um, our goal is to actually fix sales and help every company buy SaaS. But the result of that is actually we then help every company sell SaaS. Because if every company uses vendor to buy every SaaS product in the world, all of a sudden we become just the source of distribution for, for SaaS companies, but, but we can do it right, right? We can do it with trust at the core and transparency and speed. Um, so we, you know, to do that was like, wow, this is actually going to be incredibly daunting and we need to make this scalable. And so we hired uh, Joe Lind, um, who was, an, he was one of the founders with Cord at Terrible Labs. Um, he started in um, August of 2019 and started building out uh, an engineering team. And uh, now engineering is roughly, I think like 30% of our company. Wow. Okay. And you did raise an initial seed round of, of funding. Was that 4 million? Yeah. So we raised, we, we did Y Combinator's demo day and we got some good interest, but we were definitely not the darling. Um, we, I think a lot of people at the time looked at us and said, well, you know, that's not scalable. And I've heard that from day one, that's not scalable. But what's interesting is the company gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and we're doing it scalably. That question, like the people that say that, it's like now there's actually a track record of three years and we have a gross margin. We have revenue growth rate. We have retention. There's a lot of metrics that actually support the scalability. Um, and a lot of that is also because we built a lot of technology that enables the growth. Um, but at the time, that was like the big thing. Like, will this actually scale? Um, but we ended up raising um, through a, a $2 million seed round through F Prime here in Boston, uh, which is Fidelity's investment arm uh, through David Jagan. And, um, and then nine months later, we did a seed extension with Kraft Ventures and David Sachs joined our board. And that was a $4 million seed. And um, yeah, so that, that was our, our seed round. And then we did our Series A this February. So how did you go about getting Kraft and David Sachs to join your board? Yeah, I mean, we met them during Y Combinator. And that's another, obviously, you know, superpower that comes through YC, which is access to pretty much every venture capital company you, you can meet with. And they actually want to meet with you. Um, so we met David and his team during YC. They passed on our initial seed round um, because they wanted to see more, more technology traction. And then nine months later, uh, we gave them an updated demo and on the spot, they said they wanted you know, to do the deal. And um, so it was, you know, the lesson there for me was the value of, of giving, having checkpoints with, with VCs who are of interest to you. Um, because we, 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 I really liked what, the reason I, we wanted David Sachs involved is that he's an operator. And you know he built PayPal, he built Yammer, and he he operates uh, at a different level. He operates like a founder, not a VC. And he happens to be, I think, a really really strong VC. But at his core, it's he's truly an operator. And so we can bring him in with like product and go to market challenges, and he just offers pretty immediate insights that we were previously not thinking before. Um, so, but for him, it was really getting the, the technology box checked. 
So back in March of this year, you raised your A round, which is 60 million. And, you know, rounds are crazy these days. You know, the, the A, B, like there's the numbers are just next round of capital. Um, but that's a pretty sizable round. Uh, so, you know, Tiger Global led the round, which, you know, they're, you know, very active, uh, especially growth rounds. So where were you at with your business that, you know, the investors were like, okay, it's go time. Here's, you know, I mean, it can be considered a growth round, even though it's like series A, in my opinion, like, I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, 60 million is usually like a growth go, let's go to market round. Yeah, we had five X uh, the year before. And um, I think the, I forget who wrote the blog post, but the, you know, to become a, a unicorn, it, it used to be you have to triple, triple, double, double, double. So you get to a million, then it's like triple to three, triple to nine, and then double until you get to a hundred million of ARR. And our year at follow, you know, we, we hit a million pretty quickly, but then for us, you know, the, the five X year happened. And um, I think for tiger, that was um, definitely one of the main reasons they wanted to invest, which was we were in our experiencing hyper growth. And then two, the revenue health is strong. Like the people that use vendor get a ton of value from vendor and they want to keep using vendor, which is great. Um, but then three, it goes back to that every company, you know, we have, um, when I think of our, our earliest customers, they were B2B SaaS companies that that's, those were the companies using vendor. Um, but I looked, you know, the, at the time when we did our series A, like people like your companies, like the Washington post, you know, we're already a customer and it's like the Washington post has the problem of too much SaaS? Yeah, they do. And so does every other newspaper because they have digital footprints. And to power digital footprints, you need SaaS products behind those, right? And to power a company, you need SaaS products, even if you don't have a digital footprint. So um, the, the, the size of market, it, it's just ever expanding because the, the breadth of our offering, we've just realized as we get into new verticals that truly every company needs this. Now we've got to actually go get in front of all of those companies to show them the light. Is the buyer usually the procurement team at the company? Are they the end buyer typically, or is it somebody else? It depends. Um, the buyer could be the CFO. It could be the controller. It could be the head of procurement if they have procurement. Um, a lot of companies don't have procurement. Um, it could also be the, um, it could be the, the stakeholder. It could be the department lead that uh, at HubSpot, we sold to Carrie Munns, VP of engineering. And she had the problem of managing, I think at the time, 25 or 40 SaaS products that were powering her infrastructure team. And so it's things like, you know, making up the, the suppliers, but it would be things like pager duty or Splunk or Snowflake or New Relic or Datadog. And that was consuming over 20% of her time. Right? So, Ugh. you know, and that's, that's just in, in engineering cost of goods sold suppliers that's happening to your CRO. It's happening to your CMO. And it's also happening to your individual contributors. It's help it, it SAS was built for the end user. And so procurement teams uh, are, are, are really put into an almost impossible situation, which is they need to help everyone at the company buy all the SaaS products they need, which is growing at like three X. You know, I think that cloud spend is going to go up three X by 2025. How can a small procurement team actually do their job when before software, 
their job was like they had a they had much fewer, a much lower quantity of products to procure. And so they could just spend their time on all the big important stuff. But with the inflection or the influx of SaaS, the quantity is just, it's exponentially higher. And so it's nearly impossible to do a proper job procuring all of those products for your team. And so um, anyways, companies that have procurement, yeah, we're, we're an extension of that team. And then companies that don't have procurement, we operate as that person. Yeah. Okay. What's the size of the company currently as far as employees and what are the plans in terms of, of, of growth and, and hiring? Yep. So we were 10 people 18 months ago and today we are 150. So wow. we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll probably close out the year around 200 people. That's amazing. Okay. Um, and like, what's it like working there? Like, like the culture at, at vendor. Uh, yeah. So I, I borrowed a lot from some of the great companies that I've worked at in the past. And um, my, my favorite from HubSpot was controlling your own destiny and just empowering the team to be the best versions of themselves. And the specific example was at HubSpot, I had the chance to go to international and help open that office. I'd never done that before. I then got the chance to manage a team. I had never done that before. Then I got to like be a director. I'd never done that before. And they weren't basing my qualification off of my resume. They were basing it off of past performance and my ability to learn and my ability to want to, or willingness to want to take on more. And I always felt like I could control my own destiny there. And I want every person at vendor to feel the same way, which means if you come here, it doesn't mean you'll get every opportunity, by the way, but it means that you'll have the chance. And um, the, the second piece is maintaining an, 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 uh, an abundance mindset, meaning the opportunities will continue to be abundant if we keep growing. And so if you join a, a rocket ship, we need more managers. We need more leaders. We need more C-level people. We need more people to start up new divisions. We need people to go to international and help us figure that out. So opportunity truly is abundant. Um, and then the second piece is, uh, this is this is um, you know custom or we we came up with this on our own, but we just have kindness at our core, and I don't know if it comes from like the Midwestern roots, but we have a very kind company, and it's not fluffy and it's not random. We're in the business of negotiating, so we're getting thrown right in the middle of a transaction, and if we were jerks, which we could be, we could still do our job. We could negotiate, save money, break kneecaps, and like you know you know, piss off salespeople. But that's not fun. And like, if I'm a salesperson, I wouldn't like that. And so, and, and we're trying to fix sales. And so, doing our job with kindness is something that's been critically important to me since day one. And it doesn't mean everyone likes us, but it means we at least go in with the benefit of the doubt and we are kind. But what's happened is it's now led to a company of kindness where the number one adjective we get from candidates is everyone I've met with is so kind. And I'm really, really proud of that because. It's helped us recruit really great people who were casual, were fun, were kind, but we're super passionate and we're passionate about fixing sales. We work really, really hard. I mean, it's, it's an intense culture too, right? Because we grew 5X last year. We're, we're having a really significant growth year this year. It's hard and it requires everyone to do more with less. Um, and we're all learning on the fly. So it's like we're building the plane as we're flying. Um, so those are some of the core I would say, you know, uh, pillars of, of our culture. I think I, I heard on maybe another podcast uh, interview that you did that 
you were like, oh, you know, it, you'd give advice to hire for different departments ahead of time. Like, you know, don't hire after you need them and you're like desperate, hire ahead of the curve. So what, like, what's your thinking there? Yeah, I mean, it's, we, our recruiting team is incredible. And when going through 10, going from 10 people to 150, we did with a terribly small recruiting team and terribly powerful as well. And so um, the, it, we just, we underfunded it and I didn't see what was about to happen. I didn't see that we were actually going to be doubling our headcount every six months. And because of that, we strained that team and they delivered though. And, um, but it, it was a really important lesson, which is we need to plan for our future headcount growth. Um, and we have to staff up the operations first to then enable that growth versus retroactively saying, uh, you know, now we've got to go fill all these roles and they, they're understaffed. Um, so it was just a, a huge lesson for me. And I learned it from one, going through it and, and putting our team through it. But two, um, we recently hired uh, a, a chief product and engineering officer. Um, his name is Darius Contractor. And it was one of the first things he said. He, he looked at our, our company, he said, well, you know, we're going to be doubling probably in the next six to nine months. So how are you thinking about recruiting? I was like, well, what do you mean we're going to double in six to nine months? How do you know that? And it's because he's seen the story before. And so just having that, that line of sight uh, was hugely helpful. And you know, I think on our side, we're, we're doing things that most of us haven't done before. And that's part of the fun of it. Right. We're learning every day. We're making mistakes every day, uh, but we're also like having massive wins every day. So, um, yeah, it's just it's been a, a, a ton of fun. And I feel like I'm finally chasing my childhood dream of starting a company and actually now having having a real company to, to get to try out these these lessons and, and learnings with. Now, if uh, for an entrepreneur that doesn't have that sales background, obviously you have that, which is amazing. How should they think about hiring and structuring a sales team so that they are putting themselves in a good position to be successful and not play the game, right? So maybe, you know, you know, building a sales team that has transparency. Yeah, I, th I think that's just it, right? Um, knowing that you, if, if you have, if you want to build a team, a sales process with transparency, just do it. And it doesn't mean your pricing can't be variable, by the way right? Like variable pricing makes sense. Meaning if you're selling to a very small company, they, they give the value you receive from that company is different than when you're selling to Google or Goldman Sachs. Like you can give them different pricing. It's actually reasonable for you to give them different pricing because you're getting something different in return, even if it's just their logo rights. Like if you get Goldman as logo rights, that is going to change your business potentially. Um, but so I think just, just shining a light on the levers and being uh, open and upfront with what does control the pricing is, is hugely powerful. Um, and then I also think like for the, the earliest companies, um, I noticed that a lot of um, founders that are, are, are technical founders, and so I'm a sales-led founder, but for technical founders, they outsource sales. They hire someone to do sales. Mm. And it's because they think a lot of them think that they can't be a great salesperson, but, but I, I think that's overcomplicating it because sales is truly just telling a story and it's telling some, telling a story of a passion that you have recognizing that someone took a call. So they want to hear why you're building this company and there's no better person to tell it than you as the founder. But then two, 
It's you articulating the problems you solve and for the types of companies you solve those problems for. And then eventually all these examples that of other companies you've actually solved, like the validation side of it, the, the companies you've solved this for, like that's sales. And then the person on the other end of the phone, if it resonates, they're going to want to buy. So then uh, allow, allow them to buy, right? And like, that's where having that, that simple pricing mechanism will do you a benefit where you don't even have to play the game of a negotiation because you have, you have pricing that is transparent, easily understood and fair. That's all that a buyer wants. Yeah. And it's so true. Like the founder is or should be the best salesperson in the company, at least starting out, uh, especially getting those early customers, because you are the one with the vision, the conviction that you can solve the pain that this customer is willing to spend money on. Uh, three apps you can't live without. Three apps I can't live without. Um, I'll give you I'll give you the big one, um, which is Eight Sleep. I recently purchased an Eight Sleep, and to help cool my bed, I'm a very hot sleeper. Uh, it's been a game changer. So I'll give Eight Sleep oh. all three credits. Okay, so as you're the first person I've talked to, I've heard about the company and saw the buzz. So the first person I've talked to, so you you would vouch for that product. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you the the other two are, are probably less interesting, but. Um, I'm a, you know, I rely on Uber Eats and, and caviar quite a bit, but the other one would be Zillow. Um, my, my partner, Hannah and I, we love browsing for houses. And so it's like our nightly activity to see what's recently popped up on Zillow. Got it. Okay. How about any podcast or book recommendations? I will give a shout out to David Sachs on the all in podcast. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a I great just, one. Uh, yeah, it's been, I've, I'm, a, I'm a huge all-in fan. Yeah, I uh, follow a lot of Jason Calacanis, have for years since his early days. And uh, yep. Silicon Alley Reporter was his like uh, actual print magazine that I used to read when I had just started recruiting. So uh, good stuff. That's definitely a great one. What do you do for fun outside of work? Uh, I'm a very bad golfer and um, I'm an uncle. So my sister has three kids. I love spending time with them. And my parents live on Cape Cod. So love getting out to the Cape and I'll give a shout out for the Cape of going off season and September, October are the two best months. So hopefully plenty more Cape days or Cape weekends to come. That's perfect. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great stories as far as your entry into sales. And of course, what you're doing vendor and helping to remove that friction of, of B2B SaaS software buying. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Keith. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.